in that place in, in Revelation. This is one of the seven letters uh, commissioned to be sent to the church by the risen Christ to encourage and help his people. And in this case, it's the letter to the church at Philadelphia, uh, a church that, as we'll see, had but little power. It was in some way weak. And we want to ask the question, how, how does one go about helping a weak church? Before we read the text, let me just highlight some things so that you'll have them in your mind as we read, uh, because this church um, sits in a particular context, and Jesus draws on that context even in the way that he pastors them. It's a great reminder to us that he knows where we live. He doesn't just know his church generally. He knows our specific circumstances and how to pastor us in them. This was a church in which he offers them no rebuke, no criticism, no correction here, only commendation and help in their weakness. But he's not chastising them for their weakness. It's a church that exists in the city of Philadelphia. It was a city named for King Attalus II, who loved and admired his brother so much that he was nicknamed Philadelphus, or brother lover, and then the city was named for him. It was a major trade route, and it was designed to be a route uh, in the east between Asia and Europe for the spread of Greek culture and language and influence. It was a city that had a peril associated with it. It it lay, uh, much like San Francisco, uh, along a fault line. And there had been an an ancient earthquake in A.D. 17 that had destroyed the city. And aftershocks were so strong uh, that uh, for, for years people slept outside the city but came back in to do their work. Uh, for fear of of being buried alive at night. That city was eventually rebuilt uh, under Emperor Tiberius, who donated so much money to its reconstruction that the people voted to honor him by changing the name of the city to Neo-Caesarea, or New Caesar, which lasted 30 years or so before the name reverted back to Philadelphia. All those events and details, I think as you hear them, play a part and are a background to uh, this letter. But the church was evidently, in some way, small, at least in the sense that would impress the world. It was perhaps weak and insignificant in the eyes of the world, not wealthy or not influential in human terms. He says, I know your deeds. I know that you have but little power. So how do you help a church that wants to serve Jesus in its community but feels itself to be weak and perhaps feels that it will be ineffective based on either its size or perhaps partly because of its membership or even its resources. How do you help them? That's what Jesus speaks to in this text. And so let me invite you to hear God speak to us and help us from Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. This is God's word. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, 
who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you now write this word on our hearts for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what do we need to serve God in our place? Jesus encourages us for service with a revelation of himself. Then he equips us for service with a revelation of ourselves. And then he energizes us for service with a revelation of our future together with him. And I want you to think about it in those three terms. Notice in verses 7 and 8 how he encourages the church at Philadelphia for their service with a revelation of himself. He says, lift up your eyes and look again at me. I am, verse 7, I am the Holy One. And that's Isaiah's favorite name for God, the Holy One of Israel. And now Jesus says, I am that Holy One of, of the true Israel, the church of God. I am, he says, I am the exalted one. And I am, I am true, I am dependable, reliable. You, he says, can bank on me to accomplish what needs to be accomplished through you. That, that fits the need of this church. They, they feel evidently ineffective and he knows them, he knows where they live, he knows their works, he knows our deeds, he knows when we feel weak. And he says, I'm utterly reliable and I'm your God. You could depend on me. And then he goes on to describe himself uh, following that by saying, And I am the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now that has a history which they would have been familiar with from Isaiah chapter 22. And I, I want you to just hear one verse of it, and then I want to explain its history to you. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Listen to how this sounds like what we just read. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. Now in Isaiah what's happening is this that Hezekiah the king 
has chosen to replace the steward of the kingdom, Shebna, who was in charge of the palace and who had the key, with Eliakim. So Shebna is going to be replaced by Eliakim. And so Hezekiah's choice is going to be Eliakim to be the steward of the kingdom, to have the key into the palace. And the expression here in Revelation is used to present Christ as the chosen Messiah, the son of David, with absolute power to control entry into the kingdom of heaven. Eliakim and Isaiah is given the key that opens the door and shuts the door. That's the significance of the key. And here, Christ, the Messiah, says, I have absolute control of entry into the kingdom of heaven. And so the point is that Eliakim, in the Old Testament, is replacing the untrustworthy and unfaithful key bearer, Shebna, and so Christ is presenting himself to his people as the one who, has, uh, who is dependable and who is reliable and who replaces the, the false pretenders to authority in God's house, the unreliable, the unbelieving, what he calls the, the, those who are of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but aren't because they're not Jews in their heart. They haven't embraced the Messiah, but they still rule in the synagogue. And so Jesus says, no, 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 no. They may have shut you out, you Christians who've believed in the Messiah, you former Jews who've embraced the Messiah. They may have locked the door to you, but no one shuts unless I allow it, and no one can open unless I allow it. And so in verse 9, he's going to deal with what he calls these liars of the synagogue, Because he has absolute authority as an expression of his own free will. No one can stop him. Either way. And that's the first meaning of the open door that you see then in verse 8. He has the key to the door and the open door is is the the key to salvation. Uh, The door is controlled by him. And that's so important for a small church which feels weak in its community, perhaps uninfluential. The key which opens the kingdom for people is not man-made. It's not human wisdom or strategy. It's Jesus himself who holds the key to that kingdom. Now, the second meaning of the door in verse 8, I think, and I think there is a secondary meaning to it because of what the rest of of Scripture describes, Uh, When he says, I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut, I think though it primarily refers refers to the door of salvation, it also refers to uh, the door of service that is open to them as a church. A door of service that's open to them to present the door of salvation to others. Institutional religion had been closed to them by those who claimed they were pseudo Jews, but Jesus says no one can shut the door, no one can shut it against them, and now you have an opportunity, having walked through that door, you have an opportunity to serve. And you get that idea throughout the New Testament. We could turn to a variety of places, but in Acts chapter 14, verse 27, Paul and Barnabas, they they report to the church what God had done and had been doing with them, and how God had opened a door of faith. To the, to the Gentiles. The God's at work, they say. 
Well, what's the evidence? He's opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Or, for instance, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, pray for me. Pray that the Lord may open a door for the word to proclaim the mystery of Christ, a door of service to proclaim. So this is what happens also in, 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 in reaching people with the good news, in service and evangelism. It, it, it is that God opens the door that the message may enter. And so when we feel weak and ineffective, and I think one of the reasons we're often reluctant, we're often timid, about speaking up for our Savior is, is um, because we have fear. Because we fear the approval of man. And Jesus is saying, look, I rule and I reign. Draw your courage and strength from me. I think one of the reasons we're reluctant is we fear. We, we make too much of it, in fact. We make too much of proclaiming the gospel with others. We think it's too big a deal. And so we have such wild expectations in our mind about what will happen if we speak a word for our Savior. And we think, well, surely this will be the day of salvation for that person. So I'm going to wait for just that one strategic moment. We make too big a deal of it. Speaking about Jesus is no big deal, and it shouldn't be a big deal to us. It should be part of the regular course of conversation we have with people like we have with one another. Sure, you need to use wisdom in speaking to people. You need to think about what you're going to say. You need to be gracious and let your conversation be seasoned with salt. But it's not that big a deal. And, and the truth is, whatever positive, eternally good effect there is, isn't up to us. You can't do any eternally good that God doesn't do by accompanying your word with the spirit of power. It is his word by his spirit which will, will plant a seed that grows into eternal life in somebody's heart. Jesus is encouraging us, some who are, we might say, the neediest of people. He can open a door of service. He has, friends, opened a door of service in Arkansas. In, in 2002, and you know that he had worked long prior to this to bring about these events, but you know that in 2002, RUF at Arkansas started. It was also the same year a church planter came to work towards particularizing the church in Hot Springs. There was already a core group. God had been at work, but Corey Pelton came, and God has since particularized that church, and God brought Chris Miller to Rogers, Arkansas, and God has particularize that church. It's its own church that is plant, that has planted a daughter church in Joplin that's going to be particularized as its own church November 7th by our presbytery with Reed Dunn pastoring that church. God has opened doors and God has worked. God is doing a work in Siloam Springs as we speak. We long for it to be all that God intends for it to be. God can open a door of service in Springdale and East Fayetteville, and in Bella Vista, and in Fort Smith. And he can open RUFs at NWAC, and a full-time work at John Brown, and in other places. God can do it because Jesus holds the key. And he opens, and no one can shut. That's the first thing I want you to see, how he encourages them for service with a revelation of himself. The second thing I want you to see is how he equips us for service with a revelation of ourselves. And here, in verses 8 through 10, just almost phrase by phrase, he equips us by, by helping us think 
about the church, about ourselves. And, and he highlights five principles, and I, I want to highlight those for you as we have time. The first principle is this, that the strength of the church should never be measured in human terms. In verse 8, he says, I know that you have but little power. And in worldly eyes, by human assessment, we should ask, what is a strong church? What does it mean? And worldly eyes say, masses of people, lots of money. But a church with lots of people can be weak in God's eyes, though strong in man's eyes. And a church with few people can be weak in God's eyes, though strong in man's eyes. And the reverse is true. A big church isn't disqualified, nor is a small church. Here's how God measures the church. Verse 8, I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. That's the measurement to use, Jesus is saying. One word describes both, not fame, not celebrity, not newsworthiness, but faithfulness. Faithfulness to the truth, faithfulness to the Lord, to the word, and to him. That's what he says about them. They were bound to the scripture. They believed the gospel. They lived it. And that is not insignificant in God's eyes. There are many men who have a terrible cross to bear because they do preach to a congregation that is indifferent to scripture. That was the case with Jonathan Edwards, perhaps one of the greatest preachers America has ever known. He preached for 22 years in the same church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And at the end of 22 years, his congregation voted him out of the church and they ruined his reputation among others so that nobody would hire him as a pastor. So he had to go be a missionary. Why? Because he insisted that people make a public profession of faith before they come to the Lord's table. They heard the greatest preaching anyone could have heard in their generation for 22 years. And at the end of it, they did not respond and they did not listen to the word. Some people preach in congregations like that. Your pastor Sagan is not one. I am not one as well. Here Jesus says, you've been faithful to my word. You've not denied my name. That's the measure of your strength. I know you feel this way, but it, it is not necessarily a sinful ambition to want to grow in size, to want to have more influence in our community, to want more resources to be unleashed for the kingdom. That's not a sinful ambition necessarily, though it can be an idol of the heart to rival Jesus, but it is more important that we are useful where we are. That's what Jesus is emphasizing, that we are faithful and respond to God's word. And so the strength of a church should never be measured in human terms. That's the first principle, to equip them for ministry. The second is this, that the effectiveness of a church depends ultimately on whether God's power is at work in and through them. Paul picks up the language of weakness in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And he talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let, let, me, let me have you hear 
what he says about this idea of weakness. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why did he do this? Not because he glories in folly or especially favors people who are just ordinary. The reason is because he's looking for one thing. Why? So that no human being may boast in his presence. But rather we should boast in the Lord. So why is God, con- what is God concerned about in this church? Not success, the way that the world measures it. Certainly not failure either. God is concerned for his own glory. And people are the dwelling place of his glory. And so he takes the weak and he lifts them up that we might be trophies of his grace to radiate his glory. And then people look at the church and say, God must be at work around here and we can't mistake it for anything else. And so that's the second thing. The effectiveness of church depends upon the power of God at work. And that honors God. And thirdly, the commendation of the church honors God. At the end of, and in verse 8, Jesus has no word of rebuke. Though most of the other letters, there's only one other one, the church of Smyrna, the suffering church, he doesn't rebuke them either. Comes alongside them in the midst of their suffering and simply encourages here. He offers no word of rebuke either. He simply commends them and tries to strengthen them. And it's not that this church was sinless. It's not that there weren't troubles in that church. There are troubles in every church. It's full of sinners. And it's not that God doesn't see. He just says, I know your deeds. I know that you have kept my word. I know that you have not denied my name. When, when some people come to you and commend you, I know that you're tempted to say, well, if you knew the truth, you wouldn't say that about me. But you can't say that to the Lord. He knows the truth, and he only commends this church. Now, some of us struggle, I think, with the very idea of commending anybody for anything. Parents often fall off the wrong side of the horse on this, and rather than commending their children find that their lips speak words of criticism and correction almost invariably. Sometimes in the church we can have that, that we find it easier to discourage believers by highlighting their faults rather than to encourage them and strengthen them and commend them for their positive graces. We should ask ourselves, is the pattern of our speech toward believers, parents towards their children, patterned after Jesus himself, who here steals no glory from God, but rather returns glory to God when he highlights the faithful work of believers, who are, after all, but evidencing the grace of God manifested in their lives as God has worked in them and through them. And so I say to you, thank a Sunday school teacher 
commit to 12 months a year of teaching Sunday school. Tell a deacon they've done a good job serving the church. Write an expression of thanks to an elder. Write Pastor Paul while he's away. Tell him, come back quickly, Ted's meddling. It steals no glory from God to commend God's own work in the lives of believers. That's the third thing he does to help them serve boldly. Fourthly, he speaks of the enemies of the church in verse 9. The enemies of the church, he says, can only be dealt with by spiritual weapons. So whatever he means by you have an open door and I'm not going to shut it and you have an opportunity, he certainly does not mean take up arms against those who oppose you. In fact, he says, I will make them acknowledge that I have loved you. Don't you go and try to force something on them. I will make them come and acknowledge that I have loved you. In the Old Testament, he's reversing an image from Isaiah where the, the, the Jewish people expected the Gentiles to come down and bow before the Jews and acknowledge that Yahweh was truly the God of Israel. And here, Jesus is saying, uh, these uh, false pretenders are going to, at some point, bow the knee to Christ and acknowledge uh, that God has raised him from the dead and made him Lord over all and acknowledge that Jesus has given himself for his people And he loves them. Now, the modern parallel for us, because in a Gentile culture where we haven't been kicked out of a synagogue, nor are we barred uh, in in that way, the modern parallel for us that I think best gets at this is the outwardly religiously Christian community, which is inwardly unchanged, which, though it claims to be Christian rejects the word of God, denies his name, says salvation is not found in Jesus, but says it's the true church and then marginalizes true believers. It's rampant in the Protestant, the larger Protestant church in America today. Only God can touch that heart. Our job is to be a trophy of God's grace. Let Being loved by God in Christ be your boast and your delight. And let Jesus deal with others. Like Joseph, when the Lord placed him over his brothers who had despised him, when they came and bowed down before him, he did not retaliate, but served. And so when everything seems to be pitted against the church, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who defends my church and my people. The enemies of the church can only be dealt with by spiritual weapons. Fifthly, he gives us one more principle, and that is that the, the preservation of the church. The preservation of the church in the worldwide trial, he says, is accompanied by the, the perseverance of believers in their trials. In verse 10, he says, since you have kept my command, since you have persevered, I also will keep you from the trial that is coming upon the whole world. And I'm not going to do a long spiel on your end time theology here and what all this might mean. Though I want to emphasize a couple of things. God keeps his people who keep his word. In other words, 
we persevere in believing and he preserves us. And those go hand in hand. Both are true. And, and that can seem backward of grace if you get them in the wrong order. But you've got to press behind it. Why does any Christian persevere in the faith? Because God first laid on us his love in grace. We love him because he first loved us and his love has constrained us to say, Jesus, in you alone are the words of eternal life. Where else may I go? And in persevering, he preserves us from falling away. In the hour of trial that he speaks about that we'll be kept from, I do not think he means we will be plucked out of, as some will teach, and that we will not experience, that the church will never endure this hour of trial, this great tribulation. I actually think from Revelation chapter verse 7, verse 14, that this great tribulation he speaks of is the whole time from the first coming of Christ until the second coming of Christ. And that the church is always in a period of tribulation. My own view on that, Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 15, uses this expression about keeping when he says, I do not pray, Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He does not pray that God would spare us the tribulations of this world, but that God would preserve us from the assaults of the evil one, which would destroy our souls eternally. And so he keeps this church. And it is, as far as we know, the only one of the seven churches in the seven letters of the book of Revelation to persevere down through the ages, even to today, with a believing Christian community of some size. And so he encourages them for service with a revelation of himself. He equips them with a revelation of themselves, principles about their community as a church. And finally, let me highlight this, he energizes, he invigorates us for service with a revelation of our future with him. Verses 11 to 13, he says, I am coming soon. Hold on. I am coming soon. And the idea, I believe, is I'm on the way. I am on the way. Not as some commentators think, that he meant he was coming almost immediately, and somehow the Apostle John got it wrong, and so you can't trust this word. But that Jesus is coming soon, and certainly coming, as the end of the book says, I am coming. And we pray, surely, uh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. See, what he's doing is he's motivating them with an anticipation of the future which is before them. Uh, we were going to have two or three dozen university students over for a meal one Sunday. And, of course, the night before is always a scramble, which we enjoy because it gets the house clean by necessity. We had everybody employed in cleaning the house, and so my kids were working at it, but one got discouraged. I told them that if we finished by 8.15, they could watch a TV show. And they were motivated, at least for a while, until one looked at the clock and looked at the work and decided we would never get it done and quit because he despaired. And so he gave up. Why bother? He kept saying, why bother? And at 8.30, 15 minutes past expectations, when we were done, 
he began to argue with me when I offered for them to watch TV. But we didn't finish on time. And you said, and I said, yes. I said, if you finish by 8.15, you may watch TV. I did not say to you that if you don't finish by 8.15, you will not watch TV. I was motivating them, knowing I was going to allow them to watch TV, at least at a reasonable hour. He persisted, though. It just didn't sound right, as I think probably kids in this room think, boy, parents, you know, they split hairs. I had it all worked out. I did not lie to my child. I was motivating him. But he kept persisting. He kept persisting until finally his sister said to him, you act like you don't want to watch TV. Dad said we could. And then he was like, oh, yeah, okay, all right, great. Jesus hasn't come yet. He isn't being deceptive when in the last book of the Bible he says, I'm coming. I'm coming soon. And the church prays, come quickly, Lord. We are much closer to that day than they were. Serve boldly while there is daylight. And then he says, he who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. This... This, he affirms, for their security, their sense of well-being. When they knew the experience, viscerally, of fleeing the city so as not to have it all come falling down on them, he says, no, but in my eternal city, you'll be a pillar there, and you will be permanently at residence and secure in the temple of my presence. And then he says, Finally, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city, the new Jerusalem, and my own new name. Now, what's all that? He's not taking a magic marker and penning something on our bodies. What's he doing? What's he saying by that expression? Well, I I mailed a package, a very important package some time ago, by by which I I wanted to do some eternal good to uh, a 20-year-old friend and his family and I wrote painstakingly on a new envelope we often reuse package envelopes in our house if we can but this one had to be new I told Melinda because what was in it was important and so I wrote in my best penmanship which (laughs) isn't very good at all and then I stuck a return label on it with my name and you know what the name on the address label meant it meant that the package belonged to them it's not mine anymore it's theirs in fact when I put it in the box the postman won't bring it back to me he'll bring it to them they are the rightful owners of it it's addressed to them it's it goes where they are it's to their home and the return address tells them who sent it that it has come from me And that's what God is doing when he, it says, writes his name on us. He says, you're mine. I own you. You belong to me. Your address is the new Jerusalem. That's your home. I, Jesus, send you. And that is the glorious inheritance of the weakest believer. Some say you'll be of little earthly service if you aren't heavenly minded. And Jesus begs to differ. Think on his coming and the dwelling face to face with God in heaven. 
that you belong to him and he to you, and it will energize you for service. So dream big, Covenant Church. He's worthy. He can do the work. Your faithfulness matters more than your success. He opens the door. He shuts the door. He uses the weak to bring honor to himself. And though the day is almost over, your future is secure. So serve and serve boldly. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bring greater glory to yourself by deepening the work of your kingdom in our experience and in our community, that we might all be trophies of your grace to your glory by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and ask for God's spirit.